Chapter 5. Freelancing in Chicago, 1975 through 1978. My work during the next three and a quarter years would include about as much commercial playing as symphonic playing, a balance that I thoroughly enjoyed. During the final couple of months of traveling in Europe, I had taken a complete vacation from the horn, which was refreshing. Upon returning to Oak Park, I immediately began my usual routine after a respite from playing, a procedure that typically restored me to nearly full capacity within 10 days. However, in this instance, I had taken a full two months off from playing, so I suspected that my comeback this time might take a little longer than usual. As events transpired, though, I would have no extra time to casually return to full capacity. Within 10 days of our return from Europe, I was playing lead on the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical Jesus Christ Superstar. Its scheduled run at the Schubert Theater in downtown Chicago would span about three months. I relished playing this show with its excellent writing for both the core rock band and the wind players, whose licks were given extra impact by the confines of the completely enclosed pit area. After the initial week of rehearsals, the work schedule consisted entirely of eight performances per week. Having no rehearsals was a feature of show playing that I found very appealing. Near the closing date of the Chicago run, I was summoned to a private meeting with the slender, attractive lady conductor who did her job wearing elegant floor-length satin dresses. During my later years in the CSO, I never kept that close an eye on any conductor, not even Maestro Schulte. She had decided to add the lead trumpet to the core of rock band players who remained with the show as it migrated from city to city. I was pleased to be invited to become a permanent fixture on the production when it would soon move on to Toronto and beyond. However, the conductor appeared to have taken a special liking to this particular lead trumpet, and it did not seem to be the wisest move to leave behind a barely pregnant dory in Oak Park and take on the lifestyle of a road musician. So I respectfully and wisely declined the offer. Immediately upon our return from Europe, Dory had resumed her former employment as a counselor on an adolescent unit of a psychiatric hospital a few miles from our apartment. Her income at this institution, first as a counselor and later as the director of a 36-bed adolescent unit, would serve as the guaranteed constant support of our household during these several years in which my work as a freelance player would remain steady but would fluctuate considerably according to the types of music. After the run of Jesus Christ Superstar finished, I eventually became a member of the House Big Band at the Mill Run Theater. This in-the-round theater was the only venue in the entire Chicagoland region in which Las Vegas-style shows were regularly presented. During my stint there, we accompanied such acts as Tom Jones, the Beach Boys, and Mitzi Gaynor on the round, slowly rotating stage. Sometimes two-week runs of other shows with pre-recorded backup music were interspersed between the runs of these headliner acts. During these canned music stints, the house band was off, free to take other gigs. The demands on me as a player while doing these shows were often very different from my legit work, and I noted that Bud had not mentioned some of these aspects of the job during my lessons over the years. For example, during the tune Southern Nights in Mitzi Gaynor's show, part of my role was to serve as the straight man when the star draped the huge hoop skirt of her southern bell gown over my head and shoulders which were conveniently located just in front of her elevated portion of the stage. In addition, during the rehearsals that preceded her two-week run, we four trumpets situated in the back row were specifically admonished not to glance behind us during the slinky dance routine that she performed in a flesh-colored bodysuit. Only during the second show on closing night was a little discreet glancing to be permitted.
During most of these two-week runs, Johnny Howell and I alternated back and forth between the lead and second parts. It was a fine experience for me working beside Johnny, who had been a member of the Stan Kenton, Woody Herman, and Maynard Ferguson big bands during the 1940s and 50s, while I had been a young boy growing up. At one point, the trumpet section in Kenton's band had included both Maynard Ferguson and Johnny Howell. I once heard a radio broadcast of a tune that had been recorded by the Kenton band in 1952, when I was three years old, on which Johnny had played lead and Maynard had played on one of the section parts. Eventually, Maynard had settled in California and Johnny in Chicago. In the latter city, Johnny had been the primary lead player in the commercial field for several decades. Some of the highest points of my entire playing career took place well after midnight during second shows on Saturday nights at Mill Run. These events happened on those particular occasions when the headliner was good, the writing was excellent, and Johnny was inspiring me from the adjacent chair. Enthusiasm emanated from him at all times on the bandstand through both his playing and his judicious but expressive body language. One such Saturday, as we were leaving the stage after the second show, the band leader said to my colleague, Wow, tonight you sounded like Johnny Howell of the old days. Johnny smiled, pointed his thumb at me, and replied, That wasn't me, it was him. This particular interchange rated among my most treasured compliments, almost on a par with Avis Herseth's comment to me about her mistaking the sounds of my practicing for those of her husband. Later, I did a nine-month run of the musical A Chorus Line at the Schubert Theater downtown, and I also served as the substitute player each week for the musical Cats, which played at the Schubert for about the same length of time. It was during the long-running Cats gig that I became a member of Bud's section in the CSO. However, that's getting ahead in the story. On one occasion, when my calendar was open for a couple of weeks, I accompanied Dory and some of the residents of her adolescent unit on an out trip to see the splendors of the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. When I visited the bandstand during the intermission, there was Johnny Howell on the job. By the next evening's show, I had replaced him for the duration of the gig, to his re immense relief, as gum disease was beginning to wreak havoc on, with the solidity of his teeth. The 20 minutes of continuous blowing during the opening grand promenade reminded me of my earliest days as a trumpet player. At the age of 10, my skinny arms had tired just holding up the instrument for the duration of a piece. As a boy, I had resorted to resting my elbows against my chest to help support the horn. As an adult playing the circus, I eased my pains by glancing at those lovely performers in glittering costumes, riding the elephants and horses around the ring. Sometimes my work schedule included recording sessions to lay down the soundtrack of independent films. This was quite satisfying, especially those projects that involved one particular composer who wrote nice solos for me to play. One of his movie pieces consisted of an extended piccolo trumpet solo with strings accompaniment for the first and third sections, which flanked a middle section featuring the woodwinds. The day we recorded that particular piece, it was not fun having to repeat the extended solos several times due to persistent errors that were made by the woodwind players in the midsection. While a freelancer, I also occasionally played recording sessions for television and radio commercials. However, I found these 50-minute jingle sessions to be quite unsatisfying, especially compared to playing film scores. One of the more memorable events for which I was hired in 1977 was the 80th birthday bash for John D. MacArthur, one of the wealthiest men in the world, who under considerable influence from his wife Catherine, eventually became a noted philanthropist. At this celebration, which took place in the ballroom of a major hotel, I played a fanfare duet with a colleague on long herald trumpets. Immediately after we finished, the booker for the job asked me for the manuscript of the fanfare, 
which I had jotted down during the ride to the job on the elevated train. The booker, a rather slimy character, then added his own signature and presented the original masterpiece to the wealthy honoree as a gift, as if he had composed it himself for the birthday celebration. Possibly the most out-of-the-ordinary gig took place in June of 1977, when I was hired to work on the Robert Altman film A Wedding. In the half of the movie that was focused on the wedding ceremony, I appeared on camera as the lead trumpet of the eight-member brass ensemble, dressed in white cassocks that performed at the side of the altar area. Both during and after the filming, we also laid down the soundtrack for the ceremony. During these years as a freelance musician, my legit playing was even more varied than the commercial gigs. Obviously, some of the most satisfying jobs for which I was hired were performances as a substitute or extra player with the Chicago Symphony at both Orchestra Hall and Ravinia Park. Other established groups with which I played occasionally were Lyric Opera of Chicago, Chicago Chamber Orchestra, Chicago Opera Theater, and Music of the Baroque. Pickup ensembles also often engaged me to perform with them for such occasions as the spate of Handel Messiah gigs that took place each December. Dory accompanied me to a great many spirited presentations of this particular piece at Baptist churches in the black neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago. My work schedule also included a steady stream of weddings, anniversary celebrations, christenings, memorial services, special liturgical occasions at which trumpet solos were wanted. On these occasions, I particularly enjoyed playing lyrical expressive solo pieces, as well as improvising on-the-spot obligato parts for hymns. In addition to these solo performances, I belonged to a number of brass chamber ensembles that rehearsed weekly and played gigs and concert presentations. These groups, which included a trio, a quartet, and two quintets over the years, provided me with a great deal of satisfaction, as well as being excellent for my musical development. One of these quintets included my colleague on trumpet, who had recently played the jazz solo chair in Woody Herman's big band on the road for two years, as well as the bass trombonist, who had likewise played a long stint with Woody's band on the road. Amid all of these rehearsals and performances, I continued to practice heartily and to receive lessons from Bud about once every two or three months. These coaching sessions sometimes took place during my preparations for an important solo gig or an audition, while in other instances they were intended simply to keep my progress in symphonic playing moving steadily forward. During these sessions, Bud was now sometimes more direct in his comments about the inappropriate manner in which certain players did their job in a trumpet section. For example, he clearly stated his opinions about players who would either lay back or actually take the mouthpiece off their chops during the last page or two of a big piece to rest a bit during the strenuous finale. Continuing on the same subject, my lesson on one occasion immediately followed the coaching session that Bud gave to a well-known player who was headed directly from Bud's house to a major international trumpet guild conference where he would appear as one of the featured presenters. Bud commented to me, he can't even play through a one-page etude without taking the horn off his face to rest at least, at least once. During this time, I added a shilky four-valve piccolo to my arsenal of horns to augment the three-valve Yamaha with a replaceable long third slide that I had purchased in Germany. As Bud explained, the presence of the fourth valve on the shilky horn reduced the vibrancy of the instrument somewhat, producing a more centered sound and giving the player the sensation of increased solidity. This reduced vibrancy was often a favorable trait, but the more sensitive response of a three-valve horn was more appropriate for certain pieces. It particularly delighted me to witness Bud's degree of mastery at a brass conference that was held at Roosevelt University in downtown Chicago during this period. Shortly before his presentation, 
Three trumpet players who did the bulk of the television and radio jingle recordings in Chicago offered a presentation on their particular line of work. First, they described in great detail how they were required to sight-read and play impeccably every single time in the recording studios, even during the very first run-through of a jingle. After all this brave talk, they then proceeded to fumble and falter considerably during the demonstrations of their supposed prowess. Then Bud delivered his talk and demonstration on symphonic playing, in which, among other excerpts, he played the high C octave call from Zarathustra, and then repeated the lick four times in quick succession in four progressively higher keys. As part of my ongoing development program, I continued to listen avidly to Bud and the CSO whenever the ensemble played particularly important brass literature, both in live performances and via the weekly radio broadcasts of recent live concerts. In addition, many of the premiums that were offered during the annual fundraiser of public radio station WFMT, the fine arts radio station in Chicago, consisted of complete works from broadcasts of earlier Chicago Symphony concerts, which had been recorded live during the 1960s and early 1970s. I taped from the radio these pieces, which were aired according to a printed schedule, and added them to my ever-expanding library of CSO live concerts. Part of my personal training program also entailed hearing radio broadcasts of the live performances of other major orchestras. I was particularly intrigued to hear the decidedly poor playing of the lead trumpet parts in concerts by the Boston Symphony. The faltering quality of those performances would never have been heard in presentations by the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, which was a training ensemble composed of developing younger players. Dory and I continued to have a good personal relationship with Bud and Avis. Dory particularly liked phoning Bud on July 25th and playing happy birthday for him on her recorder. In May of 1976, I was chosen through open auditions to be the lead trumpet for a new full-time, federally funded summer orchestra, the Chicago Festival Orchestra. During the playback at a recording session of this group, I caused a bit of a rift with its conductor, an overly confident wannabe, when he declared to the recording engineer Kusevitsky, the distinguished former music director of the Boston Symphony, couldn't have done it better. When the engineer asked, who's Kusevitsky? I instantly explained, he used to play for the bass. The room felt deathly silent as the conductor flushed to a deep red hue. Near the end of the festival orchestra season, as August was drawing to a close, Dory and I worked out a series of hand signs that she was prepared to use in the audience at Navy Pier concerts to signal me if she were to go into serious labor. However, she did not have to use her sophisticated signals since our first child, Kevin, who was nearly two weeks overdue, finally arrived just after the summer season ended on September 4, 1976. We soon took Kevin to meet Bud and Avis at their house, where he snoozed quietly while we enjoyed the Mexican breakfast that Avis had prepared. Then Dory and I settled into our former schedules and new duties. With Dory working her usual 3 to 11.30 p.m. shift at the hospital five or more evenings per week, I handled the child care during all of those times when I had no gigs. We needed babysitting help to cover most of my daytime rehearsals, as well as most of the evenings when I had performances. For my private practice sessions each afternoon, in addition to transporting my four horns from our third-floor apartment to the church, I now also carried an infant in a snuggly, a chest-front pouch suspended from shoulder straps, a diaper bag, and full bottles. At the church, the nursery room was handily adjacent to my practice room, so I was fully outfitted with a playpen, a wind-up swing, and plenty of toys for tots. 
When the baby was particularly fussy, I occasionally attempted to practice with him in the snuggly, and I even once played a brass quintet rehearsal with him in his pouch on my chest. However, this solution presented its own set of problems. When he was awake, Kevin liked to pull my beard and generally interfere with my playing and my concentration. And whether awake or asleep, his weight on my chest interfered with efficient breathing. Thus, during my practice sessions, he spent most of his time in either the playpen or the swing. I soon discovered that a full winding of the swing would give me sufficient time to play through a full-page etude. When open auditions were held in August of 1977 for positions in the newly formed Chicago Philharmonic, an attempt to establish a second orchestra in the city, I was chosen as co-principal after playing an hour-long audition. This ensemble, which only lasted through the following January, dissolved at about the same time that Dory accepted the position as director of a large adolescent unit at the psychiatric hospital, and thus increased considerably her weekly work schedule. In addition to all of my musical activities during the years 1976 through 78, I also made a considerable number of road trips to study the prehistoric archaeology and the history of Michigan, Wisconsin, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky. In some cases, I carried out the research trips by myself, but in many cases, the family joined me on these camping jaunts. During this period, I also researched in depth the activities of the three generations of my French ancestors who had preceded me in in Michigan. My grandfather had emigrated from central Quebec in 1884, and my grandmother had emigrated with her parents and siblings from the southeastern tip of Ontario in 1887. All of these non-musical activities kept my interest in music fresh and spirited. Our son, Ben, joined the family on June 30th, 1978. That particular week, I was playing with the CSO at Ravinia as an extra trumpet on stage. Early on the morning of the 30th, I called the personnel manager to report that Doree's labor was advancing quickly, but I still might be late for the rehearsal. During the birth process, both Doree and I kept one eye on the clock in the delivery room, hoping that I would be able to make the rehearsal on time. After Ben arrived safely, I immediately left Doree in the delivery room to commence the 45-minute drive from Oak Park to Ravinia. However, in the parking lot, I discovered that I had to change a flat tire on the car before departing. Thus, by the time I arrived at the pavilion, the rehearsal had already begun, and I learned that Roddy Law had felt the need to hire another player to replace me for both this rehearsal and the concert to be played the following evening. So my great rush to change the tire and make the wild ride northward had not been necessary. Now with two children to care for each day, I continued to transport them to the church every afternoon to practice. This entailed carrying infant Ben in the snuggly and leading two-year-old Kevin with my hand that was not laden with trumpets and gear. Only two years later did I learn that the aged couple who lived across the street from the church and who watched the Kent trio arrive and depart daily had dubbed me Mr. Toodles. In early June of 1978, several weeks before Ben's birth, I had been hired to play a solo recital with organ accompaniment at an Episcopal church in Chicago to celebrate the christening of the infant son of a young couple. The new parents were very enthused about symphonic music and had decided to make this child's public arrival a musical event, with the christening ceremony taking place during the intermission of the concert. At about the same time, I learned that the fourth-slash-utility trumpet position in the Chicago Symphony would soon be vacant, when Phil Smith would depart to assume the lead position in the New York Philharmonic. Since Phil would be playing in the CSO through its August-September European tour, the auditions would be held shortly after. I decided that I would keep up the momentum 
that I had developed during the recital preparations of May and June and maintain it right through the coming months until the auditions would take place in the autumn. For the next five months, I played a solo program somewhere every week. In some cases, one or another of my organist colleagues joined me for concerts at various churches. However, utilizing an organ for a concert required considerable advance arrangements and it limited the performance venues to churches. A much more portable combination involved a piano. In these instances, any venue that had a piano would suffice. Two different pianists and I presented many concerts, which alternated trumpet solos with piano pieces in private homes, schools, churches, senior citizen residences, hospitals, libraries, and community centers. Some of these settings were excellent with a well-tuned piano of high quality in a room with good acoustics. Others were considerably less than ideal. However, the listeners at each locale enjoyed the offerings, and my pianist friends and I benefited a great deal from the regular schedule of recital performances. During each concert, I incorporated discussions of the various horns that I used, since each concert involved B-flat, C, E-flat, and piccolo trumpets. In those weeks when no program with an accompanist was scheduled, I gave unaccompanied presentations in the same wide variety of venues. After the CSO vacancy and audition were officially announced in the International Musician, and the list of orchestral excerpts to prepare was available, I added those excerpts to my solo programs. Playing them without accompaniment, I discussed my choice of horn and mute for each piece, and explained how those particular passages fit into the orchestral context. In each instance, I recorded my presentations with a portable cassette machine, and during the following days, played back the tapes, critiqued the music making, and acted as my own teacher. During this preparation period, I did not approach Bud about any coaching sessions, thinking that such assistance would be inappropriate. I had already received 11 years of his guidance, directly by lessons and indirectly by oral examples, and it was now time to show what I had absorbed. In addition to heartily practicing basics and etudes to maintain and burnish the fundamentals and playing weekly solo presentations, I also sang through many etudes, solos, and orchestral excerpts each day. When dealing with the excerpts, I focused equally on all of the trumpet parts of each piece. The singing activity was an invaluable training exercise, one which Bud had promoted since my very earliest lessons. It developed a very musical approach since no physical instrument was involved in the process. As with every audition for which I had prepared over the years, this one was viewed as an opportunity to make a major surge of forward progress in my music making. It was not possible to maintain this extreme degree of effort on a permanent basis, involving this amount of practicing, performing, singing, and listening. However, an approaching audition offered the added impetus and inspiration to step up my usual program of self-improvement for a considerable number of months. On a parallel subject, during any audition preparation period, Dory and I avoided discussing what changes might be wrought in our lives if I were to win that particular position. Our only goal was to facilitate a maximum amount of progress during that period of heavy effort. By utilizing this mental approach, there was never such a thing as an unsuccessful audition. If I did not get a certain job, either I was not yet ready to fill that position, or my style of playing was not what that particular ensemble was seeking, or I had not played my best on that particular day. Irregardless of the official outcome of any given audition, the experience was always enriching and progress-inspiring for me, never discouraging or disheartening. Over the course of the first two weeks in November of 78, 
the CSO audition committee heard 140 candidates play their preliminary auditions. Some 300 applicants had written to the personnel manager concerning the vacancy. However, over half of these individuals had eliminated themselves from the competition after receiving the list of solos and orchestral excerpts which, which were to be prepared. The roster included the first movement of either the Haydn or Hummel concerto, plus excerpts from the first trumpet parts of the following orchestral pieces, Bach's Christmas Oratorio, Mahler's Symphony No. 1, Strauss's Don Juan, Beethoven's Leonore Overture No. 2 and No. 3, Bartók's Concerto for Orchestra, Breton's Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, and Stravinsky's Petrushka. My particular time of trial was 1 o'clock p.m. on Saturday, November 11th. During the course of my hour in orchestra hall that day, when I performed as candidate number 129, I witnessed the same dignified aspects of Chicago Symphony audition procedures that I had observed four years earlier. A total of only five candidates playing each hour, individual dressing rooms for each applicant to prepare and wait in, a heel-muffling carpeted walkway on the stage, a wall of screens across the front edge of the stage, fair voting by committee members with no conversations allowed, and hourly notification of the results. During the course of my audition, which lasted over 15 minutes on stage, I played a major portion of the first movement of the Hummel Concerto, plus all of the orchestral pieces on the list, except the Beethoven Leonore Overture No. 3 and the Britain Guide. By the end of the following Monday, after the remaining preliminary auditions had been heard, a total of three candidates had been advanced to the final round, representing 1% of those individuals who had applied to audition. The finalists included George Vosberg, who was a senior at the Eastman Conservatory, Steve Hendrickson, a good friend of mine who had spent two years training in the Civic Orchestra and was now freelancing around Chicago, and Tim Kent. Between then and the final audition, which was scheduled for Monday, January 15th, I continued my training regimen of weekly solo programs for another two months. In addition, Steve Hendrickson and I got together at his apartment once each week to play mock auditions for each other. To make these experiences more valuable and real, the listener in each instance turned his back on the player. Thus, no visual distractions were involved for the listener, and the player attempted to make any changes between various horns imperceptible to the listener. Being good friends and wanting the audition preparation to be a healthy learning experience, we offered each other amiable but frank critiques. In the process of our weekly sessions over the course of these two months, Steve and I not only improved our trumpet playing skills, but we also became better friends. During this time, I also took a single lesson each from Dale Clevenger, the CSO's principal French horn, Ed Kleinhammer, the orchestra's bass trombone, and Arnold Jacobs, the CSO tuba. All of these latter coaching sessions were invaluable to me, with each of these men encouraging me in his own particular way and from his own perspective to play as confidently and musically as possible. It was during this period that I was playing the long run of the musical Cats at the Schubert Theater downtown. Thus, on a few occasions, I ran through the Hummel Concerto and the excerpts from my friend Johnny Howell on Saturdays during the interval between the matinee and the evening show in a large rehearsal room at the theater. Johnny's long career as a big band and commercial player had not involved any legit music, yet he made some very observant comments about my playing in those sessions. By the weekend before the scheduled Final audition in January of 1979. 29 inches of snow lay on the ground everywhere in the Chicago region. 
and huge piles loomed beside every street where plows had cleared partial pathways. The white crystals had been falling throughout December and the first two weeks of January, without any above-freezing days to cause any melting. This 29 inches of accumulated snow on the ground represented the greatest amount to have ever been recorded in Chicago. Over the weekend, the especially heavy amount of new snowfall resulted in the closing of O'Hare Airport, the shutting down of the elevated train system in the city and suburbs, and the blocking of virtually all streets in the entire metro area. Since the roadways of Oak Park were nearly impassable, I could not travel from our apartment to the church to practice as usual. So I practiced as best I could all weekend in the apartment, with a cup mute muffling the sound somewhat from the many neighbors, but also interfering considerably with my last-minute preparation and maintenance. To make matters worse, both of our boys came down with chickenpox over the weekend. Their misery accentuated the rather crowded conditions in our one-bedroom apartment. Ben, six months old, having outgrown the bassinet, slept in a crib in the long hallway, while Kevin, 27 months old, slept on an air mattress in the living room. Early on Monday, January 15th, Roddy Law, the CSO personal manager, called to notify me that the auditions which had been scheduled for that afternoon had been postponed until Tuesday. With O'Hare Airport closed, George Vosberg could not fly in from New York, and the blocked streets and shut-down trains prevented the two local candidates and the listeners from traveling to Orchestra Hall. So Doree, who could not reach her hospital on the impassable streets, tended the sick boys while I put in another day of practicing with a cup mute singing through the Hummel Concerto and the excerpts, and listening to CSO recordings to keep that sound clearly imprinted on my mind. The following day turned out to be an exact repetition of that same routine, with Radi's postponement phone call, crying babies, muted practice routines, singing of music, and listening to records and tapes. Finally, by Wednesday morning, the airport had reopened, the elevated trains were moving again, and some streets had been plowed clear. This time, the call from the orchestra indicated that the audition was on. Having been one of the five finalists when this same position had been opened in 1974 when Phil Smith had won the job, I had had four long years to contemplate that former experience and learn from it. During those four years, I had applied two important precepts from the Dalai Lama. When you lose, don't lose the lesson. And not getting what you want is sometimes a wonderful stroke of luck. This time around, I was much better equipped to both win the CSO position and meet the performance standards of the orchestra on a permanent daily basis. Before both the solo round and the later excerpts round of the audition, I maintained a very positive and upbeat attitude in my dressing room at Orchestra Hall, ready to do my very best presentation whenever the call came to go up on stage. Warming up only moderately on the horn, I sang aloud a few passages of the Hummel and the excerpts, and then silently ran through the rest in my head, keeping the mental picture of the music clear. In the elevator on the way up to stage level, Mr. Williams, the gentle giant who was the head of security for Orchestra Hall, instructed me in his deep southern crawl, Do this one for your wife. Doree and I had gotten to know this kind and warm-hearted man during my days in the Civic Orchestra. During both of the rounds on stage, I concentrated as fully as possible on only the music at hand, staring at the sheet on the stand and blocking out other input as much as I could. 
Without a screen blocking the view, I had to ignore the sensations of standing alone near the front of the stage, with Bud and Schulte sitting together on the ground floor in front of me. A few rows back, and the nine members of the audition committee scattered among the other ground floor seats. Before playing each passage, I visualized in my head exactly how I wanted it to come out of my bell, with a good sound, rhythmic, musically expressive, and an appropriate style for that particular piece. If any given lick went less than exactly as planned, I did not dwell on it, but instead kept thinking only forward to the next passage. After the solo round was finished, the round of orchestral excerpts was held, involving passages from each of the pieces that appeared on the list. In addition, the sight-reading capabilities of each finalist were tested on excerpts from the first trumpet part of Stravinsky's Pulcinella Suite, as well as on various third trumpet solo passages from Prokofiev's Symphony No. 5. After we three candidates had completed the excerpts round, we waited in our respective dressing rooms downstairs for the final decision. When Radi Law came down the stairway to deliver the results, he first went to George's door. I heard him say, Sorry, George, you played well, but unfortunately, you didn't get the job. Then I heard him deliver a very similar message to Steve. Apparently, Radi thought that I had heard these condolence messages and thus understood their implications. Neither he nor anyone else came to my door to announce the good news, so I had to infer myself that I had become the newest member of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. When Bud and the other members of the brass section, who had been part of the audition committee, came down to the locker room a few minutes later, they each congratulated me. These messages of warm welcome assured me that my assumptions of sweet success had been correct. At this point in time, I had been working on my music-making skills for four months short of 20 years. In addition, I had first heard Bud and the Chicago Brass Section 11 years and three months earlier at my introduction to live symphonic music on that October day back in 1967 at U of M. It had been a long haul up a rather zigzag path. But each and every playing experience along the way had contributed to my total array of skills. Upon arriving at our small apartment in Oak Park, where Dory was waiting to hear the results, I headed directly for the bathroom without saying a word. There I took down a little scrap of paper that had long been taped to the wall handed it to two-year-old Kevin, and instructed him to deliver it to his mother. On the slip was printed a quote from Eddie Cantor. It takes 20 years to become an overnight success. <laughs>